Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, August 31st, 2014. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. The share ID for Friday, August 29th, is 6800. That's 6800. This morning's presentation is Chapter 9, The Family Afterward. The Family Afterward describes the many challenges and readjustments facing the family of the recovered alcoholic. The big book stresses the importance of living by spiritual principles as a means of restoring trust and integrity with family members. Joining us this morning is Katie F., a recovered compulsive overeater from Virginia. Katie will bring this chapter to life through her experience and fascinating insights. And we welcome you to the line, Katie F. Good morning. This is Katie F., a recovered compulsive overeater. Recovered by the grace of God. Um, I asked to speak on this chapter because I love to tell people that there is hope, that whatever life throws at you, it is possible to stay in this lifeboat called recovery. You may think, well, sure, you're just naturally a disciplined person. You are strong. You have good boundaries. You don't, um, you don't cave under pressure like I do. Uh, it's actually quite the opposite. I've made many mistakes, have messed up at home, at work, with my kids, my family, you name it. But the steps and my higher power have carried me through to the other side of a problem. And I've learned, grown, and changed um, because I spent the first 27 years of my life always looking for the escape hatch or the other person to blame. After putting the food down, working the steps, getting a new thin body, I was faced with the two options we all have. Uh, To let life bring me down again, pick up the food and chase after serenity or learn how to face challenges and keep pressing forward. Um, That is the route I've been blessed to follow since October 7th, 1987. Um, I've been maintaining a 70 pound weight loss for 26 years. Okay. So let's look at the text. Chapter nine, the family afterward. Uh, Um, Sorry. Bondage yourself takes over when you're speaking at something, at anything like this. And I want to impress you. I want those who are already recovered to think, oh, I want to be like her. I want to question why God would want me to do something like this when I am just so not perfect. But I have a message to carry because I have lived through so many obstacles, so many times, I can't even begin to tell you how many times I have sat with tears running down my face saying, this is too hard. This life of recovery is too hard. I want to go back to the numbing uh, head in the sand, not caring about anybody else, Because I want to not feel, I want to not feel whatever is going on in my life that feels so hard at the moment. 
and I don't want uh, to keep going on. You know, that's where my head goes when I think that this life is too hard, this life that God has given me, this gift of recovery that God has given me is too hard, and I can't do it one more day. I can't measure one more, uh, you know, cottage cheese, and I can't, you know, go to the grocery store one more time and figure out what I'm going to eat and figure out what I'm going to do. It's just too hard. But that's not what God uh, would have me do because each time that happens, I uh, suit up and I show up and I answer the phone and I do the next right thing and I am carried through. And whatever that problem was that seemed too hard and too difficult is solved. It's solved without me having to go back to the food and start the vicious, repetitive, ad nauseum cycle of going back to the food and then having to figure out, you know, what was it that caused that problem this time? Because I have a way of living through these 12 steps that means I don't ever have to do, uh, I don't ever have to do that again. So it's about, the family afterward is about the attitude. Our code is love and tolerance. Um, but that's a guide. It's a goal. It's a vision. It's not a mantra. It's not a mandate that everyone in my family has to live this way. You know, it would be nice if when I got abstinent, then everybody else just stood up and got in line with me and did what I did. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. Um, we find the more one member of the family concedes to him, the more resentful they become. This makes for discord and unhappiness. And why is it not because each wants to play the, is it not because each one wants to play the lead? And I have done that a thousand times. I wanted everyone in my family of origin to want what I have. And at one time they were all weighing and measuring their food just like me, and they lost all their weight, just like me, but they didn't embrace this way of life. So they have all gone back to their own way of living. And, you know, through a vision for you, I, I don't even know that they're really compulsive overeaters like I am. I don't know that they have the twofold illness, but I do know that they have health issues and they are not a program of attraction for me. And I keep doing what I'm doing. But the miracle is I can still have a relationship with them without getting tangled up in their lives, without being the dictator of what they're doing or not doing. Um, but this didn't happen overnight. If I dwell on it too much, I can feel like a miserable failure telling you that, that every single one of them went back to the food. What is that? What kind of, you know, what kind of success story am I if I can't get everyone else to do it? But of course, that's not, what, that's not what God does. That's not what God is calling me to do. God is calling me to carry a message. I bring the people to the message. I am not the Savior. And so that is just something that I've had to accept every, in every facet of my life. Um, so I 
Let's look at page 23. Um, there will be alluring shortcuts and bypass down which they may wander and lose their way. And that's what happened with my family. Half measures availed them nothing. The same half measures that availed me nothing for the first 27 years of my life. You know, that's what happened with them. And, and I'm sad. But I would still be there today if they wanted to come back to this program. I've made it clear. <laughs> so many times that this this way of life is available to them or any other way if they just need to lose weight i just want them to be happy and so you know that's my family of origin um today's life is measured against that of other years and when it falls short the family may be unhappy um i this tells me that i had to set new boundaries um with my family to focus on non-food activity. Everything about, I don't meet them for dinner every week. I don't you know, go out to new restaurants. Uh, that's not what our relationship is based on, which is what it used to be. Um, and that took time. It took time to sort of re-navigate uh, how I relate with them. Though old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones, the new structures will take years to complete. In disease, it was a cycle over and over and over, repeating up and down. Um, recovery has been um, blazing new paths, not going back backwards. Um, and so it's so much better, but it's so different. It's, I spent the first 27 years of my life just repeating these patterns over and over again. And so my family, uh, you know, that's what they looked to happen. That's what they assumed was going to happen again. They assumed that this was just a phase. And now, over time, you know, they accept, they accept that this is what I do. Um, now and then, the family will be plagued by specters from the past for the drinking career of almost every alcoholic has been marked by escapades, funny, humiliating, shameful, or tragic. The first impulse will be to bury these skeletons in a dark closet and padlock the door. The family may possess, be possessed by the idea that future happiness can be based only upon forgetfulness of the past. We think that such a view is self-centered and in direct conflict with the new way of living. Uh, and I cannot forget where I came from. And that's why I you know, live this program. I live it every day and I share with anyone who wants to know what I used to be like because I cannot, um, I cannot forget that, nor do I dwell on my family though. I don't uh, tell their secrets and I've learned how to have stronger boundaries with my family. Um, <clears throat> let's see. The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family and frequently is almost the only one. But that doesn't mean I talk to them and keep throwing it in their face. I don't keep, I don't uh, tell my mother, you know, my mother asked me if I blamed her for my eating. And, you know, I never, I never did that. Um, okay. It is possible to dig up past misdeeds so they become a blight, a veritable plague. And if I, a plague is a contagious disease that spreads rapidly and kills many people. Um, 
in a very quick way. So if I keep going back to the past, I am going to just, you know, make everyone miserable. So we cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. And I just wanted to go back to page 85. Um, What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. So um, I just wanted to get down here to uh, um, on page 125. It says, um, we alcoholics are sensitive people. I had to learn that not everything is about me and God is getting bigger in my life and I am smaller. So about four years into uh, this journey, this started to change. Um, I had always been someone who would never, ever cry. I would suck air and maybe cry for a second or two, especially when I was mad. But then I started to be more sensitive, but I not sensitive, but actually able to accept being sensitive and to feel my feelings. Before that, I just didn't want to feel my feelings. Um, And this started to change. But unfortunately, it was while I was going through my stepsister's illness and death. Uh, She was 29. I was 31. And I was living myself for the first time in my life. This was the perfect opportunity, set of circumstances that would have sent me um, sprinting back to my old friend, the food. I did not have to. Um, I learned to cry. I cried a lot during that period. And and since then, I um, cry now like I think normal people do. Um, but when I see that I'm being overly sensitive because uh, the shit's not going how I would like, I call a fellow who can objectively steer me away from doing something stupid, burning bridges and burning um, burning uh, burning up my relationships. You know, I, I haven't had to do that since. I mean, there's some people that I've set boundaries with, and obviously they weren't healthy relationships, but I still can look people in the eye today. And that's only through working these steps. It's only by uh, living in steps 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis. And that's what this chapter is really about. It's about um, how we live in the world and how we live in our homes. On page 126, it says, um, Dad may be tired at night and preoccupied by day. He may take small interest in the children and may show irritation when reproved for his delinquencies. If not irritable, he may seem dull and boring, not gay and affectionate as the family would like him to be. So when I read this, I have to ask myself the question, am I the same with family um, as I am with the still suffering fellow in recovery who's calling me on the phone? Um, Am I living two different lives, not 
two different lives of, you know, one in recovery, um, which I kind of do. I mean, I do (laughs) sort of live this dual role because my family eats whatever they want. They eat whenever they want. um, And I follow this, you know, specific way of living. But am I so um, agitated and irritated at home that they wouldn't even know that I'm a person in recovery? That's my barometer on a daily basis is am I living this way of life in the home, out of the home, in the car, at my office, everywhere I go? Um, And then I wanted to skip on to this where it says on page 127, for us, material well-being always followed spiritual progress. It never preceded. And the promises have come true for me. I am, you know, I have, um, well, let's just look at the promises on page 86. Um, um, I'm sorry, 83. I don't know. I'm, I'm messed up here. Um, anyway, I'm just thinking of the promise that talks about um, financial security and I um, have been completely broke in this program and I have felt like I had more abundance than I deserved but all of those through all of those things I could not abandon my um, recovery process so let me get back here to these notes um For me, this has meant a new vision of what material well-being is. Comparing to others, I will always either be better than or worse than. Over time, my focus has shifted to only looking to my higher power for his guidance and direction. Um, So looking at the next paragraph, if he is not likely to get far in any direction if he fails to show unselfishness and love under his own roof. So I always have to look, am I, you know, am I uh, driving towards what God would want me to do or is it self-will run riot? Um, When I take, you know, am I taking every call even when, you know, my family is sitting there waiting for me to play a game with them? Um, Am I sponsoring everyone who asks or being at the beck and call of anyone and taking it out? And then taking it out of my family because I'm too rushed and too busy and yelling at them because they're not ready when I'm the one who is spending too much time um, doing, you know, program things. It's a constant um, balancing act. The next several pages are what happens in the home with a newly recovered person. Um, I want to share how that has looked for me. Living among people who eat what they want, when they want. Um, It says on page 133, a body badly burned by alcohol does not often recover overnight, nor do twisted thinking and depression vanish in a twinkling. We are convinced that a spiritual mode of living is a most powerful health restorative. This has meant different things, living a dual life with family, work, and play, all the while staying the course of working with others and staying in the lifeboat of recovery. So it's has been on my heart to list all the different family dynamics I have had. 
because right now in 2014, I'm married, live on a farm, have two children, uh, two stepchildren, and this has been my life for almost 20 years. But I've been abstinent for almost 27 years. So there was, you know, seven years before that um, where it was kind of a constant changing dynamic that I was living in. Um, In 1987, I had none of my family was living with me. I was living with roommates. And I'm still in communication with two of those people. And that, you know, just speaks volumes because I used to just burn bridges. I, you know, didn't get along with people and I would not, I'm not still communicating with everyone um, I've ever known. Um, In 1989, my sister moved in and she didn't like my new set of boundaries, my thin body. We had a blowout, but it was her blowing out at me. (laughs) And um, we did that has healed and we are good friends today and in touch on almost a daily basis. In 1990, I moved to Colorado um, and I was in a mission training center. So I lived with anywhere from 60 to 120 people for almost two years. So there were some people who didn't like me. Um, There were people who thought I was weird. There were people who, you know, questioned, some of the group, um, it was 60 when it was just the, the, the base people, and then we would get a new school would come in. So every three to four months, I would have to go through this whole thing of, you know, why don't you eat like everyone else? And, you know, I always wanted to, um, to 12-step people, but, you know, I have to say I shared with people, and I believe that kept me abstinent. But there's no one from that group who is in a 12-step room that I know of. But, again, I'm in Virginia and they're all over the world. So then I had different roommates, um, and I was able to navigate those relationships one day at a time with, you know, sometimes not perfect. And sometimes, you know, I learned how selfish I am, and I had to accept at a deeper level you know, how much I need to change. You know, that's what this recovery process is about, is that I need to change. (laughs) I can't change everyone else. It's always what can I do differently, not to be a chameleon and to, to make everyone like me, but what part of this equation where things aren't going right is my part. And that's where I, you know, press in to my higher power and I ask God to guide me. Um, I lived by myself for a while, which was a very scary experience, um, because I always, and it's so funny now that I live, you know, on this farm where really I could do whatever I want. No one would know. Um, but when I first lived by myself, you know, that was like the scariest thing to me because. I pictured, you know, going home at night and what if I went back to the food and and no one would ever know. And, you know, instead I pressed in to my higher power and I got through that time and I enjoyed it and I learned a lot. Um, And and the people that were in my life back in Colorado are still in my life. A lot of those people I still talk to on a regular basis. 
and that's only a result of this program because, you know, the people that I worked with um, before I got into recovery, you know, I'd be embarrassed to see some of them. Um, then I moved back to my back to Virginia. I met my husband. So you add two stepchildren, an ex-wife, in-laws, pregnancy, miscarriage, newborns, toddlers, children, sports, dance, school, uh, preteens, ADHD, private schools, working, wife, mother, all the different hats I wear in these roles. Um, now I have teenagers and young adults looking forward to adding a son and daughter-in-law, you know, just someday, and, and grandchildren. Um, these are all the things that I have gone through and stayed in recovery. Um, you know, I before I got abstinent, I just kept repeating the same patterns over and over again. And... You know, anything that came along would stumble me. Um, So, you know, I live in these uh, last three lines of this chapter. It says, first things first, live and let live, and easy does it. And so that has meant, uh, you know, every birthday. And some birthdays are fun, and some birthdays are disappointing, and some birthdays are too much birthday. As uh, I think there's a Curious George uh, book that talks about that, that, you know, you just, you get too much. I get too much stimulation, too much excitement. And then I start to think that's the way life's supposed to be all the time. And then I have to be brought back down to reality. And, you know, accepting that um, husbands don't always remember birthdays and, you know, making that not all about me. Um, Christmases and uh, Thanksgivings. I can remember a Thanksgiving when I was all ready to go uh, to my mother's, like we always do, and my son was sick. And one of my um, sisters-in-law was pregnant, so I couldn't bring my sick son there. So we had to stay home, you know, on Thanksgiving. I, ju- I didn't like that day. I didn't like that day at all. And then I talked to my sponsor. I talked to other people. I got really mad. I got in the car. I drove to the grocery store. I, there was a grocery store open, and I bought the food, and I made a lovely dinner, and we had a wonderful Thanksgiving, just the two of us with their baby that was sick. Um, and vacations, you know, where things, nothing went my way, or the number of deaths I've been through. Um, some... I knew they were coming. Others were complete shock. Um, I've lost my my real father, both of my aunts, both of my uncles, um, my husband's cousins. I had a miscarriage. I mean, there is just so many things that I have gone through And this program has not had to just become on the back burner and not part of my life. It's not something that I put on and off depending on how I feel. Um, This is what I put on every day in order to be of maximum service. Um, If I want to 
being useful in this world, this is how I have to live. And, you know, when I first was um, in the mission field, I went on a trip to Belize. And so my family at that time was 16 people all traveling in a van to um, Belize and they, you know, some of them thought I was really weird. And I just had to be loving and tolerant and not try to explain myself to them, but just to, you know, say, well, this is what I need to do. It doesn't mean this is what you need to do. And through love and grace, grace and patience, you know, that, that worked really well. And then we get to Belize and the grocery store was really far away. And I thought, okay, maybe I'm just taking this too seriously. You know, maybe I can just, you know, eat what I want for a couple of weeks and, you know, or a month, however long we were there. And, and it won't be that big a deal because it wasn't like sexy, tasty food. It was, but it was not the kind of food that I would normally eat. And, we went to the grocery store and they had exactly what I needed. Um, and that has happened thousands of times where I think I'm not going to make it. We don't have any money. When I was a stay-at-home mom, we were on a very tiny budget. And there were times when I thought, I can't get my food. I can't get the food I need. And not that it's all about the food, but I do need to have the food down. And if I can't get, you know, I have had to accept that I don't have to have my favorite, yummiest, you know, favorite thing that I eat in abstinence all the time. I have um, lowered my standards, not in a bad way, like I'm a bad person or um, <clears throat> doing something ugly, but just accepting that, you know, food is not that important to me. And in doing that, um, I always get what I need. And what I need has changed over time. You know, being right is no longer the most important thing to me. Getting everybody to do exactly what I want them to do when I want them to do it it's no longer the most important thing to me. And I couldn't have done that if I continued, as this chapter talks about, you know, the ones that stumbled and went back to drinking are the ones who were trying to hammer this way of life into everyone they met, into their family, into, you know, their deranged family lives. They thought that if they could get all of them to do exactly what they wanted, that was the only way they were going to stay recovered. And, of course, that didn't, didn't work. And, of course, they're ta also talking in this chapter about the family afterwards, throwing it back at the, you know, they refer to it always as the dad. And, of course, I'm not the dad. I'm the mom. But when I got absent, I wasn't the mom. I was the 27-year-old woman. Um, with no husband and no children. So I could identify out from this chapter if I wanted to and say, well, it doesn't apply to me because I had no family when I got abstinent. But it does apply to me because I have to learn how to live um, and, and live among 
other people, whoever those other people are, wherever you are in your life, there are other people. And we can uh, carry on whether people agree with us or not, whether they think that what we're doing is smart. Because I have learned that what other people think of me, it's none of my business. And that I will never please everyone. And that I don't have to worry about what everyone else thinks about me. All I have to think about is whether I am doing what God wants me to do. And that keeps my focus into today. And that is something that I could not do before. I would be so worried about what was going to happen next week, next month, next year, that I would just throw in the towel and say, oh, forget it. It's just too hard. You know, and if I get um, stuck in that place today, because I do, I can, I can wake up every day and think, oh, oh no, what am I going to do? And about, you know, my daughter who has made some really bad choices this summer and we are still facing um, the outcome of those choices. And, you know, I could sit and dwell on that all day long and worry about it and think about it, be mad about it, or I can get on my knees and ask God for his will to be done and what can I do to best serve him. Um, And so that's what I choose to do. I don't choose to stay focused on everyone else. This is the family afterward, but this is about how I can live with other people without um, alienating myself from them through being, you know, the bossy know-it-all that I want to be into being someone who is open and willing and available to share my experience and strength and hope. Um, And I'm just so amazed with how God keeps changing what that means for me. You know, sometimes it's, you know, sharing a lot, and then other times it's just listening. But all I know is that God asked for me to be available to him and to others, and that I don't have to um, worry about whether it's all going to be perfect. Um, so this last this last story, you know, is it's just such a perfect example to me. Um, one of our friends is a heavy smoker and coffee drinker. There was no doubt he overindulged. Seeing this and meaning to be helpful, his wife comment commenced to admonish him about it. He admitted he was overdoing these things, but frankly said that he was not ready to stop. His wife is one of those persons who really feels there is something rather sinful about these commodities, so she nagged, and her intolerance finally threw him into a fit of anger. He got drunk. Of course, our friend was wrong, dead wrong. He had to painfully admit that and mend his spiritual fences. Although he is now a most effective member of Alcoholics Anonymous, he still smokes and drinks coffee, but neither his wife nor anyone else stands in judgment. She sees she was wrong to make a burning issue out of such a matter when his more serious ailments were being rapidly cured. And I think, you know, for me, I can get hung up on 
whether everyone is doing things exactly the way I do them, whether they're thinking the way I think, whether they're moving along um, as rapidly as I think they should. And, you know, this is showing me that I need to stay on a spiritual plane, that I need to stay not focused on what I think someone's agenda should be for their lives, but just strictly on what I am supposed to bring and what I need to be doing. And um, with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Katie, very much for bringing to life Chapter 9, The Family Afterward, for us this morning. Katie's information will be available after the conclusion of this recording. Now we'll transition into a question and answer period. Press star 1 to unmute and direct your question to Katie, please. Hi. Uh I didn't catch names here. Can we start again? Uh, I heard Sarah, and this is Kathy. So I can go after Sarah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. Sarah, go ahead, and then we'll turn to uh, Kathy. Thanks. Okay, thank, thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Leah, for your service. And KDF, thank you so much. That was really beautiful, and I... Um, I can identify with so much of what you shared, and I appreciate it. Um, this is Sarah W., uh, Grateful Recovered Compulsive Overeater from Iowa. <clears throat> um, I really like the way you shared about um, specifically when you're uh, really involved in recovery and um, the balance act that we have to do <clears throat> in sponsoring phone calls, being um, being available to our families, and, um, you know, I, I would like you to speak a little bit more, if I could, to have you discern how you go about, um, let's say you get a phone call and you're at dinner, or just, you know, maybe a couple of different experiences that you've had, um, or, uh, you know, I know for myself, I've been in recovery 20 years, but what's happened for me is I, I see different parts of it where I've either overdone in recovery because I get such a beautiful, wonderful feeling from it and I have been negligent with my family or else I've started to feel so um, overwhelmed with thinking that I really need to be more available to my family that I start to a little bit disengage from the recovery, um, you know, especially like 12-step work uh, with uh, sponsees. So, uh, if you could give a couple of examples of ways you've gone about helping your family understand, maybe, and also um, how you've gone about um, discerning what is what is the right amount uh, uh, that you are putting into it, um, into each part. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Hi, uh, this is Katie, and. I would, I mean, I, it's certainly not a formula because it changes all the time. Um, but I do have specific times that I have sponsees call and the calls are back to back. So that sort of makes them, so it's, you know, <laughs> they're only a certain amount of time because they're, I'm, I get the next call. 
Um, it's hard to believe that, you know, when I came in and uh, got abstinent, we didn't have cell phones. <laughs> Long distance was 25 cents a minute. And, you know, it was just so, so much harder to to make the calls. I mean, I had to do them all at home. And, you know, of course, now I have, I can talk in my car on a Bluetooth and I can talk when I'm walking down the street and all these different things. But I, I would say that, um, you know, my, I have a 16 year old daughter. So it's like, you know, kind of no matter what I do, she's going to complain. And so I have to, uh, set boundaries with her. Um, but I also am respectful of the fact that she is getting old, you know, she's not going to be in the house much longer. And so I try to make my calls when she's not around. I go in the, you know, or if she is around, I go in the bathroom. And then I just try to keep them, you know, to 15 or 20 minutes. Um, but I do answer the phone unless I'm at work. I do answer the phone when it rings. And uh, if I can, because I find that it's more, um, it's harder to keep track of who I need to call back than to just take the call, answer a few questions, um, and, you know, or set up another time to talk. So I don't know if that helps, but I, I will say that, you know, like when I first had children, when like the first month after I had a baby, I mean, I didn't take my sponsee calls during that time. And God carried me through, you know, that I had less calls and less time for meetings. But then when it's time to do more, it becomes clear. I I can see that God, you know, shows me when I need to um, continue and when I need to back off. So I don't know if that helps. If you want to uh, elaborate and, add and ask another question, that'll be fine. Thanks. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll pass. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Now we'll move on to Kathy Kay, please. Thank you, Leah, for your service, and thank you, TDF. Uh, it was really great to hear you today. I appreciated everything you said. Um, and what I was hoping you might say a little bit more about is um, how uh, you are in your relationship with your husband. What I've experienced um, with my husband has been, uh, I've seen some really positive changes in how we relate to each other. And yet at the same time, um, a spiritual way of life has become really important to me and it's something that because of his historical training and so on, he's just quite alienated from. And there's a part of me that um, wishes for that I could share more of my spiritual commitment with him. And I just wondered if you went through anything like this with your husband. Um, yes, I, um, well, first of all, I was, oops, sorry, I was abstinent for seven years when I got married. So he knew it's, I've always been in recovery. So he knew from the first date that I eat different, that I, 
you know, that whole thing. And he has been very, very supportive of that. He's never, ever um, suggested that it was ludicrous and why do you do that or anything like that. Um, But... You know, you talk about this wanting him to be more spiritual and, you know, I definitely can fall into that. I mean, he is, he is spiritual. He's at church right now while I'm at home doing this, but, um, you know, I always want more. And I find that when I am being judgmental of him, I just have to, you know, it's the old thing, you're pointing a finger at someone else and there's three more pointing back at you. And whenever I have felt that way, I just press in more to my own spiritual life and, you know, just ask God to show me what I can do. And God, you know, it does, it does get um, better, but it's just best for me not to, to judge the timetable because I believe that God, you know, is working in all of our lives. And, you know, it's, for me, it's, I'm just being judgmental when I'm, when I'm um, Mm. focusing on that. So. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy Kay, for the question. Who's next? Questions for Katie. Becca W. Becca, go ahead. Thank you so much, Leah and Katie. Thank you so much. Um, I'm Becca W. from Maryland. Grateful you recovered. Um, my question, well, let me just say, my mother was 400 pounds as I was growing up. My aunt was very overweight as well. And um, both of them are interested in OA, but on different degrees. When I started really, um, you know, down my reco- down my road of recovery, I was very excited about it, and I told my mother, and she clearly said she felt like I was being an evangelist. So I 100% backed off. <clears throat> Excuse me. My aunt, on the other hand, is very excited about it. She's already in OA, but it's um, not to judge her, but it is a very passive OA. She hasn't started the steps or anything like that. Um, and she had me uh, come to Massachusetts for a retreat this past summer, which was wonderful. But she's the type of person, I'd say she's more ready than my mother, and I'm just leaving my mother alone. But um, my aunt is interested, and and she was going to reach out to a sponsor, but she's the type of person that needs to do everything with someone else, and she needs to be pushed to do things. So I'm left in this place where it's not my place, if according to program, to push her or do anything for her. She's got to do it for herself. But at the same time, there's a piece of me that feels she's a special case. And now that I'm recovered, maybe I have a different kind of responsibility, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's just giving her a nudge or I don't, I don't know how you feel about this, and this is my real question, can you sponsor, is it a good idea to either strongly nudge or sponsor a family member? Thank you so much. Well, I, um, one of my sisters was abstinent in, in 12-step program for 10 years. And 
I was never her sponsor. Um, it worked better for her to have a different sponsor, and then she did decide to walk away. Um, <clears throat> and my mother and my sister sort of sponsored each other, and that did not work. But neither one of them were really should you know even qualified to be a sponsor. Um, I would say that it's not a good idea to sponsor a family member um, because for me, I, I just couldn't have the level of accountability that I have with um, my sponsor with a family member or even a really close friend. I mean, I've had, you know, people who I've been friends with in this program and we're just better at being friends than sponsoring each other. And then there's other people that, you know, they are good to be my sponsor or me to be their sponsor because there's um, that there's a just a different boundary. And I, I think, you know, certainly you could help her get started, but then with the idea that it was on a temporary basis and that she should be looking for a sponsor. Um, I mean, it, but I, I totally identify with it because, you know, my one sister who, you know, probably weighs 300 pounds now, you know, I just would love to sponsor her. I would love to just tell her what to do and love for her to ask me, you know, but she she's not asking me. And, and yet at the same time, when she goes to meetings, I've, you know, my mother has told me that, well, no one talked to her. And it's like, you know, no one talked to me either. I had to reach out. I had to hit bottom enough that I wanted to survive. So I think that, you know, there's an, there's an element of um, desperation that needs to be there. And that is a leveling of our pride that we do have to ask even a virtual stranger to help us. And you know, most of us here on the line, that's what we, we did. You know, we got desperate enough to ask someone to help us. And so I would think that um, that needs to be the same for your aunt. I hope that helps. Thanks. It does. Thank you so much. Thank you, Becca W. Who's next? Star one to unmute. Hi, uh, my name's Stephanie, and I really, really connected with you, with what you said, Katie, and it's um, exactly what I needed to hear. And um, I've been in and out of CEA How and OA, and I'm trying OA How, trying to figure out where it is I belong. Um, it's been really, really hard. I have a six-year-old. My husband wants me to go back to work. Um, other responsibilities. I write music, and I've got a lot of stuff to get done. But I that whole balancing act, and I'm trying to develop, you know, the the connection with the higher power with all my cynicism. Trying to wash that away. It's really hard, and I just wanted to know how did you cultivate that that relationship with your higher power when you were 
in those dark places. Thanks. Hi. Um, well, when I came in, when I got abstinent, I was working 60 to 70 hours a week. And so I didn't have much time, you know, so I thought to work this program. It seemed like it was going to be just way too much, and I, I couldn't imagine how I was going to do it. But, of course, <laughs> the mental obsession is a 24-hour-a-day job by itself. So when you eliminate the mental obsession, suddenly there's a lot of there's a lot of time to to do what you need to do. Um, and I, you know, I think that the most important thing with a relationship with your higher power is to just start. Whether it's simply saying the serenity prayer one to a thousand times a day. You know, if you don't know where to start, just start with that, with repeating the serenity prayer and, and, and gratitude. I think, you know, just looking at the things that God has given you in that day or in your life that are a blessing, you know, because we have this little um, line that we say, you know, negativity is a... Um, it's a large part of our illness. So we abstain from negativity. I've heard that said before. And, you know, it sounds so simple. It sounds like it's such a small thing, but it's really huge. You know, when I look at what all I have to do in ahead of me and get overwhelmed by it, then, you know, I, I just am in negativity. But when I look at them as opportunities, as blessings, as I only have to do this for 12 hours, not for my whole life, you know, suddenly I'm able to do it. And, you know, looking at how God is, is, is working in my life instead of what I'm perceiving as being things working against me. Um, but I'm, you know, I can assure you that, that God will be with you through whatever you have to do. And, you know, just don't look at the whole thing all at once. Just take it one chunk at a time. Thank you, Stephanie, for the question. Thank you. Anyone else? I needed to hear that. Miriam from New Jersey, may I ask a question? Of course, Miriam, go ahead. Thank you. Hi, this is my first time at this meeting. Um, This is Miriam, and I'm gratefully in recovery a day at a time from compulsive overeating. Um, Thank you so much for your your qualification. Um, I've been blessed with abstinence for, uh, for over 24 years, and in doing multiple... Uh, going through the steps and, you know, continuing with my 10th steps, I've uncovered new things that I've had to deal with, including joining other programs. And sometimes some of those programs have felt so, those issues, in fact, right now, are feeling so strong that I have to, I really have to focus on them. At the same point, you know, if I don't have my abstinence, I have nothing. So this is incredibly you know, I have to stay close to this. And when I first came into program, I was going to, you know, five to six meetings a week. Thankfully, you know, that's not where today my recovery is, is connected to my higher power and not not just based on the fellowship. But I still have to maintain my connection. And so my question for you is, have you had to, have you needed to join other fellowships over time? And how have you, if so, how have you managed the balance between keeping your commitment 
to not, not of course commitment to abstinence is is a, is stay, is a given but but your commitment to how much how much do you do uh in terms of tools and and service in OA versus what you have to do for other programs thank you i'll i'll mute myself i'm not sure what you mean by other programs I'm sorry, I meant other 12-step programs. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I was in DA, too. I mean, I've been, I've been gone to DA and, you know, had to work that. And, um, but I have, I have found for myself that I was just able to kind of keep it all as one, quote, program. I mean, my main addiction is compulsive overeating. So I've been able to utilize um, the steps and just work that to working all of those things under the same umbrella of, compuls- of you know, Overeaters Anonymous through the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, you know, I do practice some other principles, you know, as you say, from other programs, um, but I've never, you know, felt like I had to abandon. I just sort of worked them all together, I guess, is, would be the best way I could answer that. Okay, so you incorporated your your other, your DA work into your OA step work as opposed to doing a separate step work with DA and separate, considering it a separate program. I, yeah, I mean, I did it. Um, I did do that in uh, when I lived in Colorado, and uh, yeah, I was able to. Um, you know, I worked the steps in that, and I did did what you do with that. But but then since then, I just have. Um, I mean, I I just don't I don't go to those meetings, and I mean, I know other people that do that, but but I've never I have not done that. I don't go to a bunch of different meetings. Um, at times when I didn't have OA available to me, I have gone to AA. But um, but I've just sort of worked them all together, I guess, is, you know, is how I've done it. I haven't. Because to me, they all are the same spiritual principles. So they um they work together well to me and you know i've even i mean there's people i know in the room who are in all these different programs so i can be talking to kind of the same people but talking about those kind of issues so right thank you very much okay thanks linda. miriam linda Gordon. and yeah, laura did you say Linda? Linda okay? Yes, yes, and then Maura. Go ahead, Linda. Thank you so much. Katie, I really liked what you had to say when you mentioned um, we can carry on whether or not people think um, what we're doing with our food is smart or not, or our program. And um, I have a situation with my family where every time I go visit them, Literally, all they're doing is eating, and then they they offer me food all the time, even though they know I'm in program and what I'm doing. And I'm have and my dilemma is, 
do I avoid them? Do I not go over there anymore? Um, do I just live my life? Or, you know, and it hurts because I would like to have them be a part of my life. So I guess my question is, um, do you have any suggestions and in, or do you avoid people who do that, you know, in your life, if they, if you have any people like that in your life? Thank you. Um, okay, thank you. Um, well, you know, as I mentioned in my, uh, that my family, <laughs> my family of origin went from, you know, buying me, because when I lived in Colorado, I would come back to Virginia and, you know, stay for a week and, I can remember there were times when my mom would say, you know, oh, I got food for you. And, you know, she would have bought one bag of carrots or something. And, you know, of course, that was like enough for one meal. And um, and then the rest of the time they were just, you know, it's the holidays. They were just eating everything under the sun. And I think the thing that has changed for me is that, when I used to go on a diet and even when I was newly abstinent, you know, I made, I just made people very aware of what I was eating or not eating, you know, somehow, I mean, they, everyone seemed to know because I was just, you know, kind of chattering about why I was eating this or, well, I do this, I do that, or I'm not going to have that, or I can't have this, or this is that and blah, 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 blah. And over time, um, you know, I, tried to practice not speaking about it and now it's become a a natural habit that I just sort of buzz around like a hummingbird getting my stuff together and I don't mention their food and they don't mention my food so I can still be with them um but you know (laughs) I've learned how to have boundaries in this program. And, um, you know, it hasn't always been pretty. I've had to have some ugly conversations. If someone, you know, was constantly asking me to eat a cookie or whatever it was, you know, I may eventually have to say, you know what, never going to eat a cookie. So please stop asking me. (laughs) And, you know, just Stop there. I mean, you know, just I can remember one time someone asked me, you know, I was preparing my food to go on a plane, which, of course, now you can't even do that. You can't bring food on a plane. But you know, this was 20 years ago. And and they said, you mean you're going to eat like that even flying? And I said, well, I'm certainly not going to if I was going to go back to overeating, it's not going to be on airplane food, you know. And so I guess the thing is, is that as I have grown in my ability to have a conversation that wasn't about food, people have stopped talking to me about it. But it takes time and it, and it takes, um, you know, <laughs> I, as you said that, I mean, the first mental picture I get is me standing in my mother's driveway because I have had to do that many times when I have been at her house. She doesn't even live there anymore, but because it was stressful. It was stressful being there on Easter or Christmas or whatever it was because, you know, they were going to eat at this time and now they're eating. And, you know, but over time that has changed where, 
I just eat when I when I need to eat, and and they really don't care. I mean, that's my point. Is that although they it may seem like they care, they really don't. And if if as long as I don't focus on what they're doing and what they should be doing, and that they've gained ten pounds since the last time I saw them, then they don't they don't care. And I keep putting them in God's hands because, as I said, I can lead someone to recovery, but I can't make them take it. I hope that helps. Thank you, Linda, for the question. Maura Z? I was unmuting, Leia. Did you say Maura? Indeed. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you, Katie, so very much for developing this chapter. It it was uh, very enlightening. Um, I have two older sisters that um, basically have poo-pooed my program. I've been honest with them about my program from the beginning. And um, and every chance um, they have to put it down or say some disparaging word about it, they take that opportunity. And yesterday, I... And I all through this, I've, I've made my amends to them. I work very hard praying before I pick up the phone <laughs> to call them, um, wanting to keep the connection alive um, from some obligatory standpoint, I guess. But anyway, I was speaking with one of my sisters yesterday, and I was sharing with her the reason I hadn't called in a while was because I was in a bad space, having succumbed to the disease a couple of weeks ago on my, on my vacation. I needed to just withdraw, just work with my sponsor, make my outreach calls, and so on and so forth. And so I shared that with her. And, um, you know, she, I had posted on Facebook, best family vacation ever. And so um, when I said to her that I had picked up, because that's the language she understands, um, and gotten back into the food on my vacation, she said, oh, that explains why it was the best family vacation ever. And I said, no, actually. And she was very honest. She was very very sincere, very serious when she said it. That's what she believes. And basically I told her, I said, no, actually, that was the worst part of my vacation. Um, so um, this has been going on for years. And, and I just wonder if you have had any experience with dealing with family members who are outwardly negative, who are always putting... they've always been putting me down and and one more thing I'll add and then I'll stop is my younger sister who has passed was clean and sober three years and they had no problems embracing her being in AA and NA but they completely dismiss you know food being um, a substance of abuse and um, my life and program so anyway, I was just wondering if you had any experience with that, um, if you would share that. And thank you so very much for your share, and I'll mute. Okay. Um, well, I mean, to be honest, if I had that situation, I would stop talking to them about it. I mean, we have resigned from the debating society. I don't know what that page is. I'm not very good at quoting chapter and verse, but... Um, but I, I, I can just tell you that I have resigned from the debating society, which for me means that I 
live this way of life. This is what I've chosen. This is what I believe God wants me to do. And if people don't agree with it, I'm not going to argue with them. And I'm not going to try to convince someone that this is what they need to do, nor am I going to listen to them tell me that this is what I don't need to do. I know you're a grown woman, and I had to accept that my family may not agree with everything I do. And so I, I stop going into that arena with them. I don't ask for their approval. And if they tried to bring it up, I would get silent and not discuss it. Change, start talking about the weather or say I have to go because I'm not going to do that to myself today. Um, I have a t- my mother has a tendency to just get on negative jaunts and, or, you know, negative things. And I will say, oh, got to go. And, you know, fortunately, she does not do that as much anymore. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I've had to do is that I have to set boundaries because it's not healthy for me to um, be around that kind of negativity and, and pray for them. I hope that helps. Thank you, Maura, for the question. Anyone else with a question? This is Alice. Alice, your turn. Hi, thank you, Katie. This is Alice from Florida. And um, one thing that you mentioned, and by the way, thank you for all this share, and I tend to think that when I see the family afterward and read it, I forget that that's after someone is recovered, I'm assuming. Um, I, I jump forward too much in that just because I'm working a program of recovery, trying to get recovered. Um, this is not quite the family afterward yet. This is just the family in the in the grit. Um, but I have um, I um, have a real problem with no surprise, and I'm sure people are going to chuckle here um, with living with a teenage daughter, a 15, my 15 year old daughter, and working my program of recovery. Um, my, I let her push my buttons. Um, not only that, it's um, just my reaction to her is so unhealthy. My reaction to the way she speaks to me and others most of the time, it just leaves me in a state of intense irritability and anger, um, which is very dangerous for me. And I think, you know, it's not healthy for me to be around her, and, and I don't like being with her. Um, and and yet... Um, you know, I since coming into program about four years ago, um, back into the fellowship, and just being on the phone with such wonderful, nice, compassionate, kind, caring people, man, it is so hard to want to be with my family instead of those people all the time. And I feel guilty about this. You know, she's my daughter. Um, I should love her unconditionally. And, um, you know, I say I should. You know, I should be willing to practice the whole acceptance thing around her. Um, I've, I really have, have tried that, you know, when I'm disturbed by her behavior and overall personality and when I find it unacceptable to me, which I do, um, that I won't find serenity until I accept her exactly as where she is supposed to be. And I find myself thinking, screw this. I have a really nasty daughter who does need to change. It's not me, you know. And um, I just feel like I'm not at a place I'm not at a spiritual place enough yet to be able to do that, you know, to be in a situation with her where I react with 
just intense irritability that basically wants me want, want to say, you know, screw the screw the program. I need to eat. That's the only thing that's going to help me deal with her and live with her. Um, I'm not at that place spiritually yet. And I just find myself wanting to um, get away from my husband and daughter um, right now and to just be with people that are are in recovery and and um and that's not my reality. It's just not my reality. I'm a wife and a daughter and a and a mother. Um, but I wondered if you could offer some suggestions um, when you just you know I just have this in my face all the time and you know my program is ridiculed by her and you know she's a teenager. I was worse for God's sake. Um, just what do I? I feel like I'm in in like a crisis mode all the time with her and it's just really just impossible for me. I don't know how to find serenity in it to get that level of acceptance and just let her be and she's supposed to be exactly where she is and um I struggle with this and I keep going back to um to relapsing, getting a year relapsing and, and they are my two number one triggers. I allow them to be my two number one triggers. So I don't know if you have anything um, helpful to say about that other than go live in a cave until she um, becomes an adult or, or me, one of the two, but thanks, Katie. Thank you for the question. And I have a lot to say about that. Um, if you want to call me, I'd be happy to talk to you about some outside sources that I use that would be outside of the um, appropriateness of sharing them on this meeting. But um but what is appropriate is to have, um, you know, I, I mentioned that I take calls, but I also make calls. And I have, um, you know, a very, a very large network of people that um, I talk to on a, you know, some people on a daily basis and other people on a weekly basis. I mean, not scheduled, but that's just the way it is. Um, and, you know, just all kinds of people that I know that have gone through whatever it is I'm going through, including exactly what you're talking about. And, of course, now all these people on the line know that you could call me because I have a 16-year-old daughter who got arrested this summer, who's the sweetest little thing on the planet, and yet <laughs> she succumbed to peer pressure and did something really stupid. Um, you know, so I think the worst thing that we can do is think that we are unique and to think that no one else is dealing with this. And, you know, all of us, I mean, most of the people in a way are older and they've already raised their children. Maybe they raised their children, um, and they weren't in recovery. And so they can, um, commiserate with you. Or, you know, they're like me who's raising their daughter who has been in recovery the whole time. And how did I do that? You know, and I'm telling you, I did it. <laughs> and she got arrested anyway. You know, she she did stupid things. And I'm not perfect. And I've had to accept that. But it doesn't mean that I go back to the food. And I don't look for her to... um to be my higher power or to approve of me. You know, that's that's a big thing is that, you know, it doesn't really matter what she thinks of me um, because it's kind of her job as a teenager 
to not like me because she is trying to learn to move away from, um, you know, to grow up. And part of growing up means that they have to separate and be independent, and that can look ugly because it's not comfortable. They want to run back and be the little girl. And, you know, so I've just had to learn through outside sources. I do a lot of reading and, you know, books on tape and just going back to the same books I've read over and over again, you know, just reading after a day just to help me get through this time because it is not easy. It is not easy raising teenagers. And um, so, but there, that's what we're here for. That's what the fellowship is all about is, um, you know, helping us through the rest of our life. That's what the family afterwards is. That's, you know, someone has named their speaking on, you know, life after the 12th step. And, you know, that's what this is, is what, what do we do the other hours of the day when we're not, you know, talking to a newcomer or talking to our network? It's how do we live this life <laughs> of, of happiness and, and joy in the midst of chaos um, sometimes? Thanks. Pass. Thank you, Alice, for that question. Anyone else? Questions for Katie regarding Chapter 9, The Family Afterwards? This is Sharon in Colorado. Hi, Sharon. Go right ahead. Thanks, Leah. Oh, thank you, Katie, and thank you so much for what you shared today, and especially on the family afterward. Um, that uh, what I'm seeing, I'm one of those that took a long time to accept that I truly was uh, having, was experiencing a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body when it came to the food. So. Uh, for many years, um, I struggled with abstinence. Uh, now I am recovered, and now my children are adults, and my grandchildren are now in their 20s. And in the family afterward, it's so helping me to see how much I still tried to uh, coerce, not coerce, but persuade gently, sometimes more aggressively, uh, about my program. And I'm learning now that I must let go of that and, uh, you know, like it says here, love them just as they are and wait till they come and ask me a question and then be uh, ready if they, if they want it. So I just wanted to know over the years with your family that was very involved and now isn't involved, have they come back at any point in your life? And I know you have a lot of years um, with back-to-back absence, have any of them come back and asked you, how do you do this and what do I need to do to be free like you are free from the bondage of food addiction? No. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, no. The answer is no. Okay. And um, They're not. I mean, they're trying to in their own ways, trying to be healthier right now, but not, no, they're not. And, you know, it's, as I said, it's like, if I focus on that, I can just be so, you know, I could cry. I mean, it's sad to me, but, but I will say that my own children um, and stepchildren 
are asking me questions. Not about, you know, a 12-step program, but they certainly are asking me how to eat healthier, you know, what should I do to eat healthier, even though none of them are compulsive overeaters, but they're, you know, just asking me questions about eating healthier. I've had nieces, you know, when they're pregnant, ask me how to eat healthy. So I have had that kind of experience, but anybody... But someone who is, um, you know, just desperate to recover the way I was because I was about to commit suicide. I was so um, upset with, you know, just so depressed by my eating. None of them have done that. And, you know, they did at one time, but they all went back. And now, you know, it can be. I can either see it as an elephant in the room or I can just um, keep doing what I'm doing and I have, you know, shared with them. I mean, since the Vision for You has been on for the last two years, I did, you know, send an email to them, give them the information the same way I did to other people. And, you know, other people embraced it and are, (laughs) you know, listening and and recovering and then other you know then unfortunately my family i don't know what they're doing so you know i just pray for god to use me however he wants to but i do not mention it ever so and that didn't come easily (laughs) because i every now and then i still have to go over it with my sponsor i'll say okay should I say something, blah, 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 blah? And she says, no. So that is what I have had to do is to stay accountable um, because, I, you know, the last time I checked, I wasn't God. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not. And it wasn't because one of them said something to me that got me abstinent. So I have to remember that, um, that... It was, you know, God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself, and I have to trust that God's going to do for them the same way. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Sharon. Anyone else this morning? Questions for Katie? Going once. Hi, this is Elsie. May I share? Or may I ask a question? A question, please. Yes, go ahead. Hi, my name is Elsie. I'm from outside Philadelphia. Thank you very much, Katie, for your service, and um, I really appreciate it. Um, I, um, I, I just can relate so much to what that other woman shared about um, struggling with family members. I look at what you said about how is my behavior at home different from my behavior with fellow program people? And um, there is a difference, and there is quite a bit of strife in my home with um, having kids with special needs. And I have, my sponsor had recommended that um, I work harder on doing my tense turnarounds. Um, seem to be many and frequent, and because they were of similar nature, then I went back and did a four through nine on both my one son and my husband. But I just, um, I still struggle, and I, I listen to 
to uh, meetings and, and try to find the, the way to practice, you know, opposite of selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and fearful. And uh, but I still struggle with this, and I I don't know if it's a desire for control or what, but um, I just thought any other comments from you would be helpful. Okay, so what is your question? I'm not sure what your question is. Um, is there anything else I can be doing besides the 10-step turnarounds? I did a 4 through 9 on both um, my husband and my son, and I still struggle with them, uh, at least my son, on a daily basis. Now, he has a lot of behavioral issues, but I still need to have serenity around the calamity. So I just mm-hmm. wondered if there's other things that you can recommend or... I heard you say about calling people, and i that's hard for me to do because my son is so demanding of my time. Um, mm-hmm. Luckily, he'll be going back to school. But, but um, you know, I just, uh, and of course, I don't want it to bring me back to the food, obviously. Right. So. Well, I don't know if um, part of your four through nine also included praying for um, yes. or for both of them, and mm-hmm. how long you did that. Did you do that more than a day? Yes, yes, I've done it for over 30 days. I did what was recommended in the back of, what, 532, I think, in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think I've gotten out of it a little bit, so maybe that's a good point that I need to bring that back in. That's, that's helpful. Yeah, because um, that's what helped me, um, is I mean, there's some people that I just have to, you know, pray for forever. And so, yeah. you know, I don't know. I mean, you probably do this already, but just to, you know, pause. I mean, it says to pause when, agita- ad- when agitated or disturbed. And, you know, it says when. So yeah. I think one of the things is that you said is that, you know, you're still bothered by him. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> you know... I think sometimes we're fighting against ourselves thinking that we're supposed to rise above human and not be agitated by an annoying person. I mean, if he's annoying, you're going to be agitated, you know? So it's how agitated we get, how much it, you know, I mean, you know, my daughter, um, there's some things that she does and you know, I've gotten to the point because I accept that that's just what she's going to do right now, that when she does it again, I mean, I kind of laugh to myself. You know, or when she argues with me or rolls her eyes at me or, you know, just does these annoying things that teenagers do, you know, I just expect her to do it now. And so it's not, it's almost like, you know, I have Teflon which I never had Teflon before. I was like, you know, the cast iron skillet, that whatever was thrown at me, it just stuck to me, and I was just um, miserable by other people's behavior. But I don't have to be that way today because, you know, it's not like I'm this flighty, spiritual, fluffy person all the time, but I also am able to not be so disturbed by other people just doing what they do. I mean, a child with emotional needs is a child with emotional needs. I mean, he's not going to suddenly wake up and say, you know what, Mommy, I know I'm bothering you, so I'm just going to be perfect today. There's no kid that's going to do that. 
emotional needs or not. They are needy, needing their parents to have boundaries and to, um, you know, love them unconditionally. And, you know, that is where I would say, you know, to make phone calls. And even if it's for one minute <laughs> to call someone and say, I'm doing this, I'm walking through this, um, you know, I'm going to spend the next hour with my son or whatever it is. I mean, that's the kind of things we do is it's called bookending where you, you know, you call someone before you have to do something and then you call them when it's done. Or, you know, I'm so grateful that I have a sponsor who's willing to talk to me every day and every day I commit to certain things that, um, you know, I need to accomplish that day. And, you know, there's been times when it was, I'm not going to be rude to my stepdaughter <laughs> because that was, you know, very difficult. It's very difficult to be a step parent. And I didn't always do it perfectly. Um, so that's, you know, where the daily practice of the, different um things you know and god just seems to put them in my path at the right time you know i can't say that i do everything i did 10 years ago um i don't even know what it was i was doing 10 years ago but i'm always doing something to stay connected to my higher power so i can get through the next 24 hours without creating new havoc and that's all I got on that. Thanks. Thank you, Elsie. Anyone else before we close up shop this morning? All right. Well, I thank you, Katie, of course, for your revealing study of Chapter 9, Family Afterward. Thank you for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with all of us. Thank you, Sarah, Kathy, Rebecca, Stephanie, Miriam, Linda, Mora, Alice, Sharon, and Elsie for your questions this morning and for everyone in attendance. And we'll close our meeting in the way we always close up here, and that's from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.